The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, welcome to episode 400 and something, 429 of the History of Literature. My goodness, we have talked to a lot of people about novels and poems and novelists and poets and so on, haven't we? A lot of guests have picked up that phone when we call writers, uh, scholars, professors, biographers, a few actors and comedians and others. One thing they have in common, these people love books. And I love talking to people who love books. I like talking to them about the books they love and have loved. We'll go deep in the archives to revisit three of our earliest guests, the hilarious Jim Shepard, the wise and wonderful Margot Livesey, and one of our favorite people in the world, the sensitive sage of fiction, short and long, and poetry too, Charles Baxter. Coming up today on The History of Literature. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. I love these best of episodes with clips selected by one of our interns. I know I fire a lot of interns around here. I'm kind of ruthless. Quality control is, I I take a, a hard line when it comes to quality control, but the interns do such a good job with these. And it's this one in particular, I might have to promote him. Something else, production assistant, perhaps. So he has gone through Three of our past episodes. Oh, excuse me. There's someone at the door. Yes. Who is it? Ah. Sound of hearts. Hello. I'm Elizabeth Bennett, yes. star of the novel Pride and Prejudice. Hmm. Here to deliver a morsel of news. Mr. Darcy and I are expecting. Huzzah to us. Huzzah. However, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a young couple in possession of an infant must be in want of some sleep. Mm. Fortunately, our impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson, has offered to babysit our beloved little one, so Darcy and I can catch some Zeds. Won't you please support the cause of love, literature, and new life? We shall be eternally grateful for your good sense and your good sensibility. Lizzie, I will be more than happy to help out, but you raise a good point. Oh, the star of the novel Pride and Prejudice. We, why does that always crack me up? We easily say star of the movie, but novelists have to have protagonists and main characters. Well, Lizzie is a star in my eyes in the novel as well as in all of the screen adaptations, and she's a star in her eyes too, apparently. So nice to hear from you, Lizzie, and congrats to you and Mr. Darcy as you welcome that bundle of joy into your world. Please ask your Aunt Jane to write us a sequel and tell us all about it. One can dream. Lizzie makes a good point, which is not only that we would be grateful for your support should you choose to become a patron for a small monthly donation over at patreon.com literature, but also that we need to thank our new patrons, including, we haven't done this for a while, it's a long list, but we'll get through it, Stephen, Jeff, Luis, Renee, Carol, Josh, Lorenz, Raymond, Nicole, Barbara, Christina, Jerry, Jill, Bob, Ted, Bibi, 
and Luke. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. That's patreon.com slash literature. And if you're more of a one-time donation kind of person, you can buy me a virtual coffee at historyofliterature.com slash shop. I need help. That's, that's clear. Well, it's probably true in a million different ways. Some of you probably thought that when you first heard me speak. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the ah, you think. There's a, a fellow who could use help, but I mean I need help when it comes to correspondence and taking care of business and production of these shows, etc. I am woefully behind, as always. So my apologies to everyone to whom I owe, I owe something, a response or a package or a what have you. They are all on my list of to-do projects, which is perpetually being shoved aside for the next episode, the next set of books to read, the next set of questions for guests, and so on. But I am doing my best. The wheel still spins, and this hamster's tiny feet are still in motion. Okay, let's turn to happier thoughts. Three of our favorite guests selecting some of their favorite books, and we start with a humdinger. This one was so good, it sent our intern toward the book. He's halfway through it and loving it. The book is Dracula by Bram Stoker. Our guest was Jim Shepard. We'll hear about how Jim discovered this book. He was maybe a bit on the young side. It's pretty racy. We've turned Dracula into a, a comic figure who sells breakfast cereals and so on now. But the first Dracula, the original, there's some, some erotic territory in there to be explored. Jim talks about that very first read, how Dracula has influenced him throughout the years, and how the book holds up today. Jim Shepard, after this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor. And they're delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, 
keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com slash literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Okay, so let's turn to uh, the next work you chose. Okay. Uh, Dracula by Bram Stoker. Oh, yeah. So I need to thank you for calling this to my attention. <laughs> I think it's it's been on my shelf for about 20 years. And I am so I, glad. I, I had not read it. And I, I sort of am putting it in the category with Robinson Crusoe and Frankenstein and Sherlock Holmes. And it's just easy to think we already know what the story is and that we know that the popularity is because the author came up with this one great idea. And I know, then, and, and, and the movies in that case have done the book so uh, much damage in that right. regard. And you, um, and, I spent years thinking that the, the novel was essentially the Bela Lugosi movie. Right, right. And then you go to the book and you think, no, this, this was popular because it was a great idea and it was a great read, and that's, that's what launched all of this. Absolutely. So how old were you when you first encountered the real Dracula? Well, this was actually one of the turning points in my life as a reader. Um, oh. I was about, oh, I don't know, maybe fourth or fifth grade, and I received a Christmas gift certificate to one of the dullest downtown department stores in <laughs> Bridgeport, one of those stores that doesn't even have a toy department. Oh. And I thought, yeah, I was only fourth grade or so, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going to have to buy some, socks or some something. pillowcases or... Uh, yeah, yeah, and so and I went there sort of glumly, and I'm walking up and down the aisles, and then it occurred to me that they did have a book section. It wasn't very big, but they had one. And I went there, and I thought, well, the heck with it. I'll just... And so I, sta I, I loaded up on anything that had a monster in it. Um, <laughs> so I got, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and yep. I got Stoker's Dracula, and I got Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And, right. You know, I came home and, and um, something that would never happen to my children now happened to me routinely and probably happened to you too, which is, you know, it was raining. I couldn't find any of my friends. Uh, there's nothing on the two channels on television that were working. So I thought, well, I might as well read this stupid book. And I, I started Frankenstein and it was, the, the language was so formal and um, yeah. so um, difficult to negotiate for my fourth grade mind that I immediately stopped and I was totally and discouraged. And I thought, oh, maybe... Sorry, Frankenstein also starts with that long passage where they're on the ice flows. Yeah, and, it just and I'm takes like, what the heck, right? <laughs> um, and so I was totally discouraged. And then I was, you know, still rainy. I still had nothing to do. And I thought, you know, one last stab. I thought, well, let me give Dracula a shot anyway. And I had no expectations for it because by that point, of course, I'd seen all of the Universal monster movies. And I thought, you know, Bela Lugosi's Dracula was kind of goofy and not very frightening and not very interesting. And I started reading the the novel and I was just swept away. Um, I got very, very quickly into, you know, Harker going, seeing all these incredibly cool things happening that are yeah. all very sinister and all very um, evocative. And by the time he gets to the castle, yeah, I, I remember thinking, even as a fourth grader, I remember thinking, how on earth did they leave this out of the movie? Were they out of their minds? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And then there's that amazing moment when um, I think T.S. Eliot even refers to it in The Wasteland where um, he's looking out, Harker's looking out the window and he sees, you know, he's looking down this gigantic abyss Yeah. and he sees Dracula at the window below him and then he sees Dracula come out the window and start going, walking downward like a lizard. Yeah. 
on the side of the wall uh, and his cape is like you know floating out like great wings and I'm like you have got to be kidding me I I had never experienced I was fourth grade I had never experienced a book that put images in my head that I would see all night essentially yeah, um, yeah. and and that was that was revelatory to me and, and then there was other stuff too like the um you know the idea that a book could be that titillating there's that amazing yes. scene um where Harker is wanders into the wrong room and the three brides come and they're and he pretends that he's in a swoon and he uh, says oh my god i wanted nothing more than them them to touch me with their red lips and i was yeah. like yeah. i was in fourth grade and i think that pretty quickly accelerated uh, my sexual development right there i think you know yeah. that it's funny because about a month ago i was uh trying to i was thinking about putting together a show about you know there's always this bad sex writing every year and there's a bad sex award and so i've been wanting yeah, to yeah. do a, a podcast about good sex awards you know like good writing about sex and so right. i was looking at a an anthology of literary uh erotica i guess it was and um or maybe it was just literary sex scenes or something and they had bram stoker's dracula in there so i read it and it was that passage, and I thought, yeah, yeah that is, passage is amazing. It's really, uh, it's a uh, great passage. yeah, it's and then really you think exciting. that this is a 19th century. I mean, you think yeah. about who wrote this. I mean, it, it was really exciting, and it, it, I was astonished. In the moonlight opposite me were three young women, ladies by their dress and manner. I thought at the time that I must be dreaming when I saw them, for though the moonlight was behind them, they threw no shadow on the floor. They came close to me and looked at me for some time, and then whispered together. Two were dark and had high aquiline noses, like the Count, and great dark piercing eyes that seemed to be almost red when contrasted with the pale yellow moon. The other was fair, as fair as can be, with great masses of golden hair and eyes like pale sapphires. I seemed somehow to know her face and to know it in connection with some dreamy fear, but I could not recollect at the moment how or where. All three had brilliant white teeth that shone like pearls against the ruby of their voluptuous lips. There was something about them that made me uneasy, some longing and at the same time some deadly fear. I felt in my heart a wicked, burning desire that they would kiss me with those red lips. It is not good to note this down lest some day it should meet Mina's eyes and cause her pain, but it is the truth. They whispered together, and then they all three laughed, such a silvery, musical laugh, but as hard as though the sound never could have come through the softness of human lips. It was like the intolerable, tingling sweetness of water-glasses when played on by a cunning hand. The fair girl shook her head coquettishly, and the other two urged her on. One said, "'Go on!' You are first, and we shall follow. Yours is the right to begin. And the other added, He is young and strong. There are kisses for us all. I lay quiet, looking out from under my eyelashes in an agony of delightful anticipation. The fair girl advanced and bent over me, till I could feel the movement of her breath upon me. Sweet it was in one sense, honey-sweet and sent the same tingling through the nerves as her voice, but with a bitter underlying the sweet, a bitter offensiveness as one smells in blood. I was afraid to raise my eyelids, but looked out and saw perfectly under the lashes. The fair girl went on her knees and bent over me, fairly gloating. 
There was a deliberate voluptuousness which was both thrilling and repulsive, and as she arched her neck, she actually licked her lips like an animal till I could see in the moonlight the moisture shining on the scarlet lips and on the red tongue as it lapped the white, sharp teeth. Lower and lower went her head as the lips went below the range of my mouth and chin and seemed about to fasten on my throat. Then she paused, and I could hear the churning sound of her tongue as it licked her teeth and lips, and could feel the hot breath on my neck. Then the skin of my throat began to tingle, as one's flesh does when the hand that is to tickle it approaches nearer, nearer. I could feel the soft, shivering touch of the lips on the super-sensitive skin of my throat, and the hard dents of two sharp teeth just touching and pausing there. I closed my eyes in a languorous ecstasy and waited, waited with a beating heart. It's easy to see why the book was widely read so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and what was great was that it was, again, that there were all of these sorts of thrills being imported under one cover, right? I yeah. mean, you had this. You had this erotic thrill, you had this supernatural thrill, you had this thriller of a book, you had this adventure story, you had, I mean, it was a, and he was smart enough to, even though it was an epistolary form, he really kept things moving. And in fact, it was really instructive for me to read that alongside Frankenstein, because as brilliant as Frankenstein is in many ways, I, I wouldn't describe it as Mary Shelley keeping things moving by any means. Right, um, right. But Dracula is really headlong in a, in a kind of a wonderful way. Uh, yeah. Now, there are digressions, and there are some things that don't don't hold up as well as others. You know, Van Helsing, after a while, starts to get pretty tiresome with his accent. And, but even Van Helsing, as he goes off in his digressions, <laughs> comes up with this just off-the-wall wonderful stuff, like, you know, the the giant spider that comes down out of the attic and drinks all of big enough to drink all of the oil and all of the lamps in Madrid or something. <laughs> <laughs> getting these stories it's just amazing right now do you uh you obviously are a big fan of this as a reader mm -hmm. i could really trace where i thought you went back to lolita as a writer but i'm wondering mm -hmm. do you dip into dracula um is it to energize your your sense of play as you were talking about earlier is there anything that you would go to the book for as a writer no i think i'm i think i'm grateful to dracula for showing me what books could do at such an early age mm -hmm. um but i but and i've reread it periodically and i've, I've read it to my kids too um and i know I, I may be influenced by it by it in all sorts of good ways that i'm not entirely alert to but uh, it doesn't feel to me a book like lolita that i went to as a as an adult functioning writer and learned things from in that regard i mean right. i think it's pleasures and its um, techniques that you can learn from, you pick up very, very fast. You know, they're, they're the kinds of things we were just talking about. You know, don't ever stop keeping the narrative propulsively moving, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And and that's something you can learn in fourth grade, you know. Right, um, right. And in fact, when I, it's interesting, you know, when, uh, I was hugely influenced also by the film Nosferatu, which is, again, very, very different from the novel in many, many ways. Although the the openings are sort of similar with Harker and going to visit the vampire, it feels in its weird austerity very different than Stoker. And when I was writing Nosferatu uh, for that reason, I, I very much didn't use Dracula as a as, as a resource because Nosferatu feels like such a different sensibility in some right, way. Right, right. Okay, are you ready for the surprise bonus question? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, on a spring break trip to Transylvania, I guess you may be you may be one of the one of the few people on that flight. You find yeah. you find lodging in an old castle that has been converted into a hotel. 
you open your closet to hang up some things and are shocked to find Bram Stoker hanging upside down. He, <laughs> he writes himself, mutters something about learning the secrets of eternal life, and eventually invites himself to join you for dinner. You discuss the impact of his novel Dracula on the world. Yes, yes, he says, it's made me a rich man. In fact, maybe too rich. But all these adaptations have a downside. Not enough people actually read my work. I tell you what, I'll give you half my wealth if you can guess what I find most annoying about the 21st century view of Dracula. And, and am I supposed to guess what he finds most annoying? Yes. Oh, let's see. That, that the sexual magnetism of the vampire has become so much um, a given, so much of an ordinary mm, thing. Right. So much of a, um, That's the cliche now. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that was most um, brave about that book was um, how much it, you know, and we were talking about that, a eroticism of the theme of the women, how much the book, um, even though it has, a, it sort of makes all of the right gestures towards piousness, how much it embodies uh, the attractiveness of the repulsive or the attractiveness of uh, the, the really awful in some ways. And... Um, the book is very explicit about that. Um, you know, right. Mina says, oh, oh my God, you know, I, 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 I couldn't take my eyes away. And, and yeah. Jonathan says that about the women. And, um, that, that was very brave. And I think for, for Stoker, I think, you know, he was in the theater, so he was used to transgressive stuff. But I, I think, he, I think he would be a little disappointed by how humdrum that's become. Oh, yeah, she's evil and we want to have sex with her, you know, whatever, you know, right. like that, that idea that, you know this is the worst possible thing for you, but it's absolutely irresistible. Yeah. Uh, he, he did very explicitly. I'm thinking now about the movie. I don't know if you saw it. It's uh, an older movie now, 1979, Love at First Bite with uh, George Hamilton. Yeah. 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 That, that's kind of, that trope is, it's it's become almost comic by then. Yeah. I mean, when you can be parodied with George Hamilton, it's gone <laughs> a little too far. <laughs> and in fact, one of the things that arrested me about Nosferatu that I thought was kind of wonderful, and... One of the things I always thought was ridiculous about the Bela Lugosi thing, you know, Bela Lugosi became like a sex symbol, essentially. Yeah, right. Um, And one of the things that was kind of uh, wonderful about Nosferatu was the way Murnau um, didn't bother to even remotely try to make the vampire um, physically appealing. In fact, he made it as unappealing as he possibly could. It was sort of like a combination of a bat and a rat and a skull. Right. Um, And nevertheless, he kept that notion of sexual magnetism in. And so... He sort of restored uh, some of that subversive energy, where you're like, "Wait a minute, why is this? Why are? Why can women not resist this? You know?" Yeah, yeah. Because if you have a, a physically super attractive, you know, the Hammer, uh, the 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 British series that did the dra- that did a series of Draculas, did a really ridiculous. Uh, you know, I mean, they took it. They had Christopher Lee dressed up as an aristocrat. And he's, a, you know, the striking, handsome man. And mm. you're like, well, of course, women are attracted to him. He's the right. he's the best looking guy in the movie. You know. Thank you, Jim Shepard. Okay, our next visit is from Margot Livesey, one of our favorite guests. She's been here several times to talk about the books she's written and the books she's loved. Jane Eyre was a big one for her, and this one. This underappreciated classic, The Good Soldier, by one of the early 20th century's literary lions, Ford Maddox Ford. Ford is one of those unusual figures. Edmund Wilson is another one, and Lionel Trilling, who kind of knew more about literature than the writers of their day. They were 
We're people of letters, excellent critics, sometimes publishers, sometimes advisors, friends, good judges of others, and so on. Ford's passage on recognizing Lawrence's genius is a wonderful literary moment, and yet, with Wilson and Trilling, for example, they never quite managed to pull off the artistic achievement of a truly successful novel. It was a source of pain for them. Ford Maddox Ford, however, did. Not just his collaborations with his great friend Joseph Conrad, but Parade's End, which is, I think, a little better adapted for the screen than read. I've tried to read it a few times. <laughs> Although some might mis disagree with me on that. But this book, The Good Soldier, is a wonderful modernist read. We've talked about Henry James being a bridge between, let's say, Dickens and the modernists. Let's say Ford Maddox Ford is a bridge between James and the modernists. Takes us a little bit, his span is a little shorter, but it takes us a little more uh, in that direction. How do we know what we know? How do we live life in the face of all this uncertainty and deception, the deceptions of love? And how can fiction portray that in the most powerful way, the techniques of fiction? You won't find this, this kind of uh, analysis or in-depth pursuit in architecture or music or sculpture or painting as a means of conveying a scenario like the one in The Good Soldier, fiction and the novel stand supreme. Margot Livesey, herself a novelist, told us what she loved about The Good Soldier. What is it that drew you to The Good Soldier? I read The Good Soldier the year after I left university, where I had studied literature and philosophy, but this was at the University of York in England, but The Good Soldier had never appeared on any of my reading lists. I, mm -hmm. I knew who Ford Maddox Ford was, mostly by his association with people like you know, Virginia Woolf and D.H. Lawrence, right. rather than as a writer in his own, in his own right. And I was, I was just bowled over when I read it. I thought, I, I, I thought the, the, the way in which the story was told was almost as important as the story itself. Right. It feels very with, modern that way. Yeah, it feels so modern. I mean, with Jane Eyre, the story begins at the beginning and it moves steadily forward. Right, right. Um, and, you know, you're on a journey and you, 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 you stay on that journey with really almost no digressions. And the good soldier, the way... John Dowell, the narrator, spirals round the material and you think you understand something and then suddenly you realize you've completely misunderstood whatever it was you thought you understood and then it comes round again. I, I was really captivated by that. Right. And you start to wonder where he is in this and if he's wrestling with the truth or if he's withholding the truth or where exactly, how exactly we're supposed to feel about him. Yes, I mean it's almost impossible, I think, to to pin him down, and he's both unreli both an unreliable narrator, but also in many ways a very reluctant narrator. You feel he constantly doesn't want to tell the story that he's telling. Right. The opening line is, "This is the st the saddest story I have ever heard," and you feel like he's either dealing with the tragedy and he's dealing with his own role in the tragedy and. The style of writing and the style of the narration 
matches uh, his position with respect to the the main story. Yes, and his role in being almost um, determinedly obtuse mm, <laughs> is, right. of, is, of course, an amazing part of the novel and part of what makes it work, that he seems to believe almost till the very end that Florence is the devoted wife she claims to be, has a weak heart, is, is this incredibly pure woman. Um, it's fascinating. Right. I have a great story about this, and it involves our our mutual friend, uh, Charles Baxter. So I'll go ahead and tell it. I haven't. Oh, do, I, yes, I'd love to hear this. So basically, I was a student, and I, I was in a course being co-taught by Charlie and, and another professor. And the professor, the other professor had read a passage from Ford Maddox Ford's memoirs. And it's that passage, it's, it's kind of famous, where he's talking about when he discovered D.H. Lawrence. And he said, uh, you know, he, he just read a paragraph of a story that came in from this unknown writer, and he basically tossed it aside and, and went upstairs, and his secretary said, oh, you found another, found another, you know, good writer? And he said, yes, a genius this time. And he, he talked about how he knew all that just from one paragraph, and just seeing the way that Lawrence was able to describe, I think it was a train scene or something. And so the professor read the paragraph and read the passage and then said to the class, does anyone know who he was talking about? And it just so happened that I had read that a few weeks before. And so I knew the answer. I knew that it was D.H. Lawrence. And I was kind of pleased. You know, here I was in class with all of these intelligent people. And it, I just lucked out and happened to know the answer to this question. And then, meanwhile, Charlie was sitting kind of in the corner and he was very quiet. Somebody asked him what he was thinking about, and he said, I was just thinking how interesting that passage is when Ford Maddox Ford's greatest novel is about not knowing. And it just kind of spoke to me about how, as an editor or as a critic, uh, which Ford Maddox Ford was, was great at both of those things, you you know it's it's about confidence and it's about knowledge and certainty and recognition and you know his ability to really see literature for what it is but then when he put on his hat as a as an author as a novelist he's adopting this position of the unknowable or the the uncertainty of it to me it just kind of crystallized what was so great about fiction and and great about novelists and and novel writing is their willingness to deal with that uncertainty and to express that uncertainty rather than uh, have a kind of, of polemical attitude toward the truth. That, no, that I can just picture, you're describing it so vividly, I can picture this whole scene and I can picture Charlie making this <laughs> incredibly pointed observation very, very simply and yes. unassumingly. Exactly. <laughs> was sort of the the one sentence that uh, changed the whole trajectory of of the ninety minute class. Yes, and of course, I mean it, that. I mean, it's one of the things that I think both readers and writers are persistently interested in is the connection between the author's life and and the novels and the way they they shape their fiction. Right. Charlotte Bronte, you know, having this very passionate, unrequited relationship with the uh, tutor she studied with when she went to Belgium, 
the married tutor and um you know writing about that first very unsuccessfully in a novel called the professor and then turning it around in 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 jane eyre and finally giving her heroine all the things that she couldn't that she herself charlotte couldn't get and i see a lot of parallels between the good soldier and the house on fortune street and the way that you used multiple narrations and um not that there's multiple narration in in the good soldier but it seems like your narrative technique and the the shifts in chronology are similar in the way that the story unfolds for the reader almost beyond where the narration is that there's this this other story that we're gaining access to but we're only gaining access to it not directly but through pieces or fragments i'm really happy that you say that because i, I mean if i if if I was a tense of the writer of Ford Maddox Ford, I would love to, you know, <laughs> have tried to do what he did in The Good Soldier, but not being able to make that work. The House on Fortune Street was my attempt to construct a narrative where the reader would feel very sure that she knew what was happening, that she understood the character, that she knew who had behaved badly and who had behaved well. And then subsequently that view would be overturned or called into question. Right. Um, By by each of the four, there are sort of, just for people who might not be familiar with it, there are four distinct uh, voices or or protagonists, I guess, four sections in the novel, and they're all sort of peeling back a new layer of this mystery of what actually happened. Yes, and one of the things that interested me was how, I think for many people over a certain age, this this does happen to us in our in our own lives over mm. over time you know mm-hmm. that we we hear one version of a story and then later we hear a slightly different version or some new fact shows up that that changes things oh that's so true that's that is so true and you find out something about your parents or or your parents friends or your grandparents or uh just old friends and things that you never would have guessed at the time, and it completely affects how you view them and, and how you view your own past retrospectively. Yes, mm. and it, it's, a, it's an unnerving and fascinating feeling when the ground shifts under our feet. Right. And were you drawn to that because it was a way to generate literary suspense and to to keep people turning the pages to find out what happened? Or was it an interest in the kind of issues we've been talking about, that this is sort of how life works? I, I, think, a, I think a combination of the two. At the boys' school where I was growing up, uh, there, were, there was a couple um, who had adopted a son, and at the time, I didn't think anything of it. I was just pleased there was another child to play with. And then subsequently, I heard why they had adopted a son at that time. And then many years after that, I heard an additional facts about this adoption and what had propelled it. And mm. we kept changing over time. And I really wanted to, to capture that effect. And right the structure of the house on Fortune Street seemed a way to do that. And I also loved the idea of making the reader into a kind of detective, if you will, who would would put things together and have a sense of figuring out the story. Right. 
Right. Well, it's very effective. That was my, that was completely my experience as I was reading it. And it, you know, I, I found it to be as, as compelling as a whodunit without having to put a, a man in a Sherlock Holmes hat on the first page and trying to investigate a, a corpse that's on the floor or something. But it was, it was as gripping as, as an Agatha Christie book. I cannot think of a higher compliment. Thank you. <laughs> that's, the, um, that's the dream of every literary novelist, right? Yes. To, to feel like they've written a page turner that uh, that gets at at serious themes and and wonderful characters, but that does so in a way that it doesn't feel like taking medicine. Hmm. That was Margot Livesey. Good for the soul. What's the phrase? Chicken soup for the soul. Replace chicken soup with Margot talking about books. That's my spiritual comfort food. I feel hailed and healed, healed and healthy again, rejuvenated or rejuvied. Can you say that for short? Well, that's a little different, isn't it? Some of my high school friends were sent to juvie. Then they got out. Then they got sent back. They were rejuvied. This is not that, thankfully. Rejuvenated. Charles Baxter made a cameo in this excerpt. When I first read Ford Maddox Ford, I was learning alongside Charles Baxter. I would say learning at his feet, but I don't think he'd really appreciate that. He was far too egalitarian of a teacher and a person to have such a concept be applied to him. We worked in a spirit of cooperation, and he was simply the best. So patient, so generous, and so gifted as a writer and as an educator. He shared his gifts with his students, as all good teachers do. And so, when it came time to put together a podcast, I prevailed upon him once again to share some thoughts. Saul Bellow, Chekhov, and a poet, James Wright. We'll hear him discuss James Wright and what Wright's poetry meant to him. Okay, so let's talk about our first author. I basically selected a handful from your list, and the first one that I wanted to talk to you about is James Wright. Mm -hmm. uh, who was a poet born in 1927, and he lived until uh, 1980. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned them as poems that have held up for you. Yes. And I'm wondering, what do, you, what do you find there? Okay, so I have to tell a story first. Okay. I was, I think, a junior in high school, and my brother, Lou, came home from McAllister College. I think he was home for Thanksgiving or Christmas. And I asked him what classes he was taking. And he said that, that he was taking a course in Russian literature in translation. Um, they were reading the stories of Chekhov. And this course was being taught by a guy named James Wright. And he said that James Wright was also a poet. And he had bought, my brother had bought, one of James Wright's books. And he showed it to me, and the book mm. was called The Branch Will Not Break. Mm -hmm. And he left the room, and I opened this book, and I thought, oh, Wesleyan University Press, that can't be serious. <laughs> Just the University Press, what kind of book is this? Right. And I opened it up, and I had that experience that you have. I don't know if you're lucky, you have it many times in a lifetime, but the experience I had was reading the first few poems and thinking, oh, I get it. That's what poetry is. Oh, you know, nobody had to tell me uh, that these poems were actually poems. I, you know, the Quakers have this phrase that something speaks to your condition. Mm. And 
and I read these poems, and you know they're uh, they're lyrically desolate and beautiful, and they also have as their background a kind of Midwestern landscape. Right. He was living in Minnesota at the time, and he was from Ohio. He was from an industrial town uh, in Ohio, and the poems just instantly spoke to me, and I had the good luck of turning to a a poem that's probably one of his most famous ones, Lying in a Hammock in William Duffy's Farm in Pine Island, Minnesota. And I got to the last line of that poem, which is, I've wasted my life. Yes. You know, I was just a junior in high school, but I, I thought I knew what he meant, and I thought I knew what it was like to feel that you know, a lot of your time has been wasted. And it was just as if my eyes were, were opened. And after that, I was, I was an avid reader of his work. I, I read St. Judas and Shall We Gather at the River and all of the books as they came out. They made a great difference to me in my life. It was the first time I had read poetry and just had an instinctive sense of what it, what it was all about. It seems like you maybe had some uh, affinity for the the setting and the location, but also just the state of mind and the, the presence. Absolutely, yeah. The settings he was talking about were settings that I knew. In Shall We Gather at the River, there's, there's a poem called the Minneapolis Poem. It's the greatest poem ever written about Minneapolis, and unfortunately for the city, it's a curse. It's a a curse on the city. He hated (laughs) Minneapolis. But it didn't matter to me. It didn't matter to me. What mattered to me was finding, recognizing something about these locales and these these sorts of people I knew and finding them in in those poems. You know, I had the good luck to, to meet him, and I was once at a reading that he gave in Brockport, he was giving this reading, and he read a poem by Apollinaire. He had recently translated La Jolie Russe. It's translated as The Pretty Redhead. Mm-hmm. And he got to a line in that poem. I hope I don't bungle it. It's, all we want is kindness, enormous country, where everything is silent. Mm-hmm. And he stopped, and he looked at the audience, and he said, and he was completely serious about this. He said, I would sell my soul to have written that line. Mm. And nobody nobody laughed. Nobody laughed. Uh, They all knew he meant it. In the early 70s, uh, with the New York School and and a lot of, you know, a lot of poets writing kind of surrealistic and jokey comical poems to find somebody who was as serious about poetry as as he was. Anyway, I loved it. And those poems meant a lot to me. Mm. You know, it's funny because I had actually typed out Lying in a Hammock at William Duffy's Farm in Pine Island, Minnesota as the poem <laughs> I wanted. I was going to read it and then ask you questions about it. It is such a beautiful poem. It reminds me of haiku in a way. It's sort of the way that it, it goes through the setting yeah. and then the way that the the speaker kind of surprises you with yeah. his own sentiment toward the end. Right, right. You know, the poem begins as a kind of almost, I won't say Wordsworthian, but it's a, it begins as a nature poem. I mm-hmm. mean, the, po- the poet is in repose, and he's looking 
up at the trees and and he, he's looking into the sky and he sees um, a bird and he's looking down at the ground and and sees that and you think oh i i know where we are i i know what kind of poem this is and then like a haiku it it makes a swerve mm-hmm. it makes a swerve that is really breathtaking can't remember the line that immediately precedes I have wasted my life, but I think it's a hawk that's circling. It's a, a chicken hawk floats over looking for home. Looking for home. I have wasted my life. Ugh. I I sat there just stunned. And in those days, I hadn't read Rilke. I hadn't read poems like the archaic torso of, of a Apollo, which has... You must change your life. Right. There is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. Boom. You know, the yep. sudden swerve that if you're alert, if you're alive to the poem, you can't breathe when you see that. Right. I, it was, for me, it, it was almost like being punched in the stomach in, in a spiritual way, in a mm-hmm. good way. You know, there are other poems of his that are like that. There, there's a poem of his on President Harding. And you'd think, my God, that's how could you possibly <laughs> write a, a right. poem about you know one of the worst presidents of the United States? But you know, the second half of that poem is about his tomb in Marion, Ohio, and the the last lines are they're just astounding. Mm. I could recite them, but I won't. It's it's too pretentioso, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he had the ability of making these giant statements at the ends of his poems that, as people say in workshops, seem to have been earned. I was just going to say, he earns his way there. He earns his way there. You think, how did you, at first you think, how on earth did you get there? And then you look at the poem and you think of where it's going and how it's traveling and doing its work and you think oh oh yeah now now i see mm-hmm. now i get it and when i read this the uh the lying in a hammock poem i i immediately knew that this would have appealed to me at any age i think after the age of about 16 it wasn't something that only someone in their 40s or 50s could identify with or you have to be at the end of your life as he was or or that you have to be you know 20 and looking forward it's just feels like if you have the right sensibility it will hit you yeah i you know i think teenagers are more sensitive than people usually give them credit for mm-hmm. and they're often onto the waste of right I mean, the, what what it means to waste time what it means to waste a life mm-hmm. you know they look at adults they and, see it. And, yep. and they see it <laughs> <laughs> they know no you know nobody has to lecture yep. them about that no they they get it and i just think you know i think poems like that are wonderful uh for for young people anyway that was when i first got hit between the eyes uh, by those poems. I also uh, love the line in there, I lean back as the evening darkens Dark- and, and comes on. Yeah. And Isn't I thought great? editors would cross out and comes on, right? They would say as the evening darkens. And then I thought, yeah. nope, that, yeah. that adds something that and comes yeah. on is just beautiful. Yeah. I, in fact, I can't help 
reciting the heart, a part of the Harding poem because it has uh, some things in it that editors would cut. The, the, the end of the poem runs something like, America goes on laughing, laughing, and Harding was a fool. Even his big pretentious stone lays him bare to ridicule. I know it, but don't look at me. I didn't start this mess. Whatever moon and rain may be, the hearts of men are merciless. Mm-hmm. And and those li- the two greatest lines in it are, I know it, but know don't it. look at me. <laughs> 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 uh, he loved, you know, he loved vernacular. He he loved the sorts of things that people actually said. Right. And you have to be an American and to have grown up when he did to uh, recognize that line. Don't look at me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not to blame for this. Yes. Don't look at me. So good. Well, we could do a whole episode on James Wright, but I do want to get to the other, some of the other authors here. Oh, all Uh, right. But before we do, I have a surprise (laughs) bonus question. (laughs) Okay. So, you awake from a long nap and find an angel sitting at the foot of your bed. She tells you that you've been given the chance to attend a dinner with James Wright. You can go alone or invite another writer as a guest. Any writer, living or dead. Do you take someone else? And if so, who do you choose? Oh, sure. I I, I would absolutely take uh, someone else. I, I wouldn't want to be selfish in all of this. And actually, the, the answer is not that difficult. You know, the first person I thought of uh, was Edith Wharton. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, because she, she'd she be good company mm-hmm. and uh, she'd keep the conversation going. Yes. But that's actually not who it's <laughs> going to be. It's, it's, it's Chekhov. Oh. Uh, because the two of them uh, would, would get along. Oh, my God. Like a couple of old friends. Yes. And, you know, they, they would understand each other perfectly well. I mean, they both came from poor, hard-scrabble parents. They worked very hard to become writers in a milieu where, you know, not much encouraged them to be writers. They both had other occupations. Chekhov was a doctor, and James Wright was a translator and and a teacher. But I think they would also have plenty to say about non-literary matters. Right. And... Yeah, that's who I'd invite. Wow. You know, you would probably fit right in with those two, but I could imagine that if I was at the dinner, I could imagine myself just chattering away, trying to impress them or or do something, and the two of them just kind of looking at each other knowingly and exchanging (laughs) a glance. (laughs) Well, They seem like they would be fast friends. I think so. You know, it's an odd thing about meeting writers who are actually wonderful or... I mean, who knows what what great is, but I've I've met a fair number of writers in my in my lucky life, and quite a few of them are not they're not ones to go nattering on about themselves. In fact, they they have a tendency. Uh, William Maxwell was was like this. You know, you you try to get Maxwell to talk about himself, he wouldn't do it. He, right. He, He'd just keep asking you about, well, what was your life like? What was your childhood like? What was 
Minnesota like where you grew up and and you could you could draw him out of of that but it was hard I have a part two for the surprise bonus question oh uh-huh. the angel says unfortunately Mr. Wright is very busy you can <laughs> you can only ask him one question what would your question be um the these surprise questions are are not very easy. <laughs> uh, if 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 I had, good God, if I had one question to ask James Wright, it would uh, it would be. You can see I'm trying. I'm struggling. Well, here's with, here's with a this. here's a way we could we can get you off the hot seat. Is okay. tell me why what you're struggling with what would you is it because you have admiration for him or because you can only you can't just pick one um no it's 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 partly because uh in 1972 james wright was teaching at the state university of new york at buffalo during the summer mm-hmm. uh, and they had given him an office and i barged in to the office and i brought some of my poems and i forced him oh, to read them. Right. Uh, I, I guess the question I would ask him is, do you forgive me for doing that? <laughs> um, I, I hope, you know, in in what whatever uh, Parnassian uh, locale he's in, that he has forgiven me uh, by now. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you're. I think this is because you've you've had a lot of success in your writing career. That your question for him was not. Hey man, are you going to help me get those poems published or not? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just will you forgive me? No, that, that, that that's all. Okay, there we go. That's going to wrap things up for this best of episode of the history of literature. My thanks to our intern for selecting those three excerpts, and my thanks to Jim Shepard, Margot Livesey, and Charles Baxter. For being with us all those years ago. Sounded a little different, didn't it, people? <laughs> well, <laughs> what can I say? Time passes. I'm not sure exactly why the technology is different, but something happened. Anyway, you can find those full episodes in our show notes and in our archives, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you got this one. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>